before getting the ball rolling with this podcast, I'd just like to take a moment to dedicate this to my dad, Joey Carlisle, who passed away yesterday, age 57. The last 24 hours have been pretty surreal, um, and I want to express gratitude on the behalf of my family and my siblings for all the messages that I've received. There's just simply too many for me to get through. Um, if you've gone to any of the Everton games over the last 45 years, home and away, you'll most likely know my dad. Um, a few people have referred to him as an Everton legend, which uh, which has made us all laugh. Um, he's followed Everton up and down the country uh, and all across Europe, from Wembley to Rotterdam. And of course, he's one of the reasons why I'm pursuing a career in sports broadcasting. And it makes me happy knowing that he left us while Everton were top of the league. Um, I've just got to say, I haven't really slept. So I'm sorry if I don't come across as my usual self for this podcast, but it's one of those things. Uh, and I know he'd want me to do this. So, Dad, thank you for everything that you did. The three of us love you dearly. And I hope, if to the heaven, that you're looking down on us. Now, to get on with things uh, and introduce my guest, I am very, very pleased to be joined by one of the most established and reputable journalists in European and, dare I say it, world football. He's the author of four books and senior writer at ESPN, Gabriel Marcotti. Gab, thanks for taking the time to speak to me today. I really appreciate it. How are you? Um, I'm all right. Thanks for having me on. And, uh, you know, uh, somebody who also lost her dad not that long ago, um, obviously thoughts and prayers go to you and, and your loved ones. And, you know, I, I, I love the, the way you talked about it when, when you talked about his love for, for Everton and, you know, leaving, leaving you with, with Everton top of the table. And, you know, I, I, I like to imagine he's looking down and, uh, and maybe having a laugh about this. Yeah, uh, I'd love to. And, you know, as I mentioned, my dad is one of the main reasons why I'm committed to pursuing a career in this crazy industry that they call football. Um, my dad was a very spontaneous man and he liked to surprise me at times. Like once he took me to the Emirates, I think in around 2006, to watch Brazil against Argentina which as a kid just absolutely blew my mind. Uh, and another time, I think on a weekend, he said he'd booked tickets for me and my cousins to go to a Europa League tie in Wolfsburg to watch Everton play Wolfsburg. Uh, and to this day, it's one of my favourite memories and one of the favourite games of football that I've watched. Uh, there was one game, however, that I'm still cross that he didn't take me to. That being this game, the, two, the 2006 World Cup final, of course, known for being Zinedine Zidane's curtain call uh, and Italy's triumph on penalties. Uh, and Gab, uh, as a gentleman born in Milan, I just wanted to start by asking, what are your memories of that day? 
so I was there. I, I would have thought you would have put a little more Everton into uh, introducing that moment because, of course, the person who gave away the penalty which sent Italy, um, which, which, which led to, to France's goal, and who to this day insists that it was outside the box, and same person who scored Italy's equalizer, same person who helped get Zinedine Zidane, uh, or who was headbutted by Zinedine Zidane, of course, um, is a former Everton player, one, yep. uh, one Michael Materazzi, of course. Um, yeah, I was, uh, I was there. I, it, it's this is, it's unforgettable. I, when it comes to football, it, you know, being an Italy fan is kind of like really the only fandom. I sort of have left um, in club football, I'm more a fan of individuals. Um, for me, the really, really big deal was beating Germany in the semifinal um, because it's Germany, because it was in Germany, because um, of the way they did it. You know, the final felt somewhat surreal, um, but still incredibly, incredibly special. And, you know, um yeah it's uh I, I know it sounds incredibly corny um but when you when you witness a moment like that i think regardless of whether you're at home or or on television um you know there there is a feeling of there's a feeling of belonging a, a, a feeling of being part of a greater whole you kind of look at the world differently at least for for a short while so yeah, it is pretty special. And because I'm old, I also remember, even though I was a very, very young kid, I also remember the, the win in 82 and, you know, this one was just as sweet. Yeah, that, that's great to hear. And, you know, again, I think that's brilliant that both you and my dad were there. Now, um, I've, I wanted to ask, obviously, in terms of your life growing up, You've experienced so many different cultures and so many different cities. Um, if I remember correctly, you were born a stone throw away from the San Siro, which is a, yeah. a, a stadium of which, you know, one day I, I really do dream of, of visiting. Places like Chicago, Warsaw, Frankfurt, New York, Tokyo, and of course, London. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask is... What was the most valuable thing that you had learned during your time in each of these cities? And how, if at all, did it fuel your passion for sport? I think in terms of, if you don't mind, in terms of just, just moving around, and I think anybody who's, who's, who's moved around can attest to this, even if they just simply moved around the same city or metropolitan area, is you become, you become much more adaptable. And, you know, you kind of, you become much more in tune to the things that sort of different people have in common than the things, than to the differences. Um, you know, you kind of have to, to, to adapt. And I think you tend to generally see the positives and maybe you're a little more um, empathetic um, towards other people. When it comes to football, I think where where I really kicked into gear as a football fan, weirdly, was actually probably when I lived in Japan. Um, and again, this is pre-internet days, pre-J League. Um, you know, this was old school 
newspapers air mailed, you know, um, the, the Monday paper with the weekend results arriving on a Thursday. My dad would bring it home from work. Um, I'm just really devouring every single scrap of anything that that you could find because it really was very, very, um, very, very far away. Um, and it's different now in Japan, but back then, Japan as a country was, was pretty much a football-free, uh, a football-free zone. Um, and obviously, that that all changed when you know when I moved to London um, to finish uh, my, my secondary school a few years later. Of course, what was the experience like moving to London? Because obviously, it's a, you know it's a metropolitan area for for, for for football clubs. There's so many different football clubs at different levels within the area. Um, it was, I mean, I think football wise, again, again, I go, am I, am I dating myself? Um, when I lived here, uh, it was still in school. This was before the sky era. So it was actually, you know, when I got here, I thought, Oh, great. You know, these guys invented the game. I'll get to watch a lot of football. I, you know, I, I had no real, I, again, if you remember, I lived in Japan before coming here. So and while I read as much as I could, I didn't really get to see, or I saw very little of, um, of, of English football before that. Also because you know, there'd been the European ban um, as well. Of course. Um, so you kind of get dropped into it and, you know, all of a sudden, you know, there's just like a tube right away and you can go to watch Arsenal, you can go to watch QPR, you can go to watch Chelsea, which um, Fulham, who I think we're in the old fourth division back then, you know, and you had so many opportunities kind of on your, on your doorstep. That said, it was obviously a much different experience than going to, than going to matches today. Um, you know, it was the terracing. There was still an, like a very, very tangible air of menace uh, at a lot of games. Um, I even went to the den once, uh, wow. the old den. Uh, <laughs> yeah, kind of, you know, you're 16, you think, oh boy, aren't I hard? I'm traveling all the way to, to, to New Cross, which felt like an odyssey back then. And yeah, it's a bit of a bit of an eye opener, shall we say. Um, but uh, but really, I, I had I, I left London in 1991 to go to university in the U.S. and you know that was a year before the Premier League was formed. Um, and then I came back after graduate school five or six years later, and the, the transformation was just enormous. You know, all of a sudden you had Bosman, so you had all the this massive foreign influx. Uh, you know, Sky was growing; everything became more commercial. All the grounds, one by one, had been uh, had been redeveloped um, or were in the process of being redeveloped. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, it's funny, actually, I remember going to Goodison, I want to say in like 98, and I didn't go as a journalist. I went with a, with a friend who was an Everton fan and I thought, oh, wow, like, you know, again, this is, uh, you know, this is a few years ago, but like, so like, oh, wow, like, you know, this looks like what the grounds looked like, you know, in the 80s and you know like uh I, and, and so that kind of stuck with me and then obviously i've been here since as i've kind of you know witnessed the transformation and, and, and what the game's become yeah that's is something that I, I do want to touch 
on with you because um, I'd just like to say I, I first met you at the Football Writers Festival in Manchester. I think it was in 2018, the summer of 18. I was covering it for my university. Um, I saw yourself, Philip O'Claire, Sid Lowe and Rafa Honigstein and as someone that's grown up and studied only ever wanting to work within football, I was like a kid on Christmas, like sitting there and listening to uh, gentlemen such as yourselves articulate and discuss football right in front of me. I mean, uh, I think the fact that I've had a few pints had helped, um, <laughs> right. but I don't think that uh, impacted the standard of my work. I still think I, I submitted to a, to a decent standard. And, you know, you touched on some of the, the changes there. Obviously, you know, you talked about Japan pre-internet, uh, England pre-sky, um, especially being from this part of the world on Merseyside, you know, you look at what the most read paper is in the country and it's very hard not to be sceptical towards journalism in the present day. Uh, it seems a completely different animal to what it was previously. Um, you know, it seems to be predicated on clickbait uh, and sensationalism. And although I would say I'm much better at writing, I stick to things like this um, because I feel like long form discussion, there's, there's less room for clickbait. You're not condensed to, you know, a six second soundbite or whatnot. You know, you've got the, the opportunity to be more clear and concise with the points that you want to make. So I wanted to ask, obviously, you've been there and seen the evolution and the change of not only football, but journalism and sports journalism over that time. What has been some of the biggest changes that you've seen? I think so. Obviously, the decline in actual newsstand sales is, you know, you can't escape that. And what you describe right there with, you know, clickbait and, and traffic and the advertising supported model, um, that has been one of the biggest changes, if not the biggest change. Um, I remember, I mean, and I say this as somebody who, you know, I, I, I read The Guardian, I had a, a lot of time for them, but at some point in, you know, around the turn of the millennium, maybe shortly thereafter, when the internet came along and newspapers were sort of trying to figure out um, how are we going to deal with this? Are we going to, you know, charge subscribers like we would when we do home deliveries? Um, you know, the editor of the Guardian very famously came out and had this line: "Information wants to be free," and he just decided to put all the online for free and it seemed like this quantum democratizing leap now everybody could have the information everybody could read it everybody could be better citizens um and unfortunately the guy was dead wrong and he nearly killed the newspaper industry it certainly dealt a lot of heavy blows because what you find is good journalism and i'm talking you know beyond sport as well, right? Journalism that actually matters, that whether it's business journalism, political journalism, you know, stuff that impacts people's lives and that is important to democracy, that costs money, that costs resources. And if you're giving away your product for free, the only way you're going to get money is via advertising. And 
there's two problems with advertising. Where there's two problems with this model, which, you know, he, which was Alan Rusbridger was his name, um, which he didn't foresee. One was that one is a fundamental democratic problem with making it um, about advertising, is that yeah you you now are suddenly accountable to your advertisers, and as we're seeing more and more companies merge, these huge conglomerates, these huge multinationals, they're the ones now who exert the influence over you because they're the ones who pay your bill if you have a purely advertising model. Um, the other problem, which he didn't figure out, is, I don't know about you, but I think the last time I clicked on a banner ad was maybe 10 years ago. Um, the fact that people would be desensitized to it, you know, People who grow up as digital natives, they're not going to treat advertisements on, on a website the way that people might have treated advertisements in a newspaper or a magazine back in the day. And so because you can also track exactly, you know, via banner, there's a code and stuff. Advertisers are like, well, wait a minute. Why am I paying these guys so much money if nobody freaking clicks on my ad? Um, and that dealt a very serious blow. To the injury, and that's why. Personally, I'm a fan of paywalls. I'm a fan of paywall models. I think, um, you know, the best guarantee that a newspaper is going to be fair and accurate and answer to its readers are the readers themselves. And if you have a hundred thousand like-minded readers who are willing to say, you know what, I'm going to give five pounds a month, 10 pounds a month, 15 pounds a month, whatever it is to support my paper, whether it's my local paper, my national paper, whatever, I will have some say, I'll be able to exert some influence. I will be able to give them the resources and they will depend on me, the reader. Whereas now with many papers, um, you know, they're basically in hawk to advertisers. And that in turn means, like you said, you know, clickbaits, lists, you'll never believe what these child celebrities look like today, you know, and, and all that crap. And you're right, that has definitely changed the, the, the conversation. Yeah, you make some excellent points there in, in relation to paper, journalism being behind the paywall. And, and I think you changed my opinion there and, and justified, you know, that produces a, a, a quality standard of journalism. Um, again, you touched on this sort of shift in business model and to talk about something that's very topical at the moment. And I know that you've been doing some work on it today. What the hell is the European Super League? <laughs> like we just had, uh, what was it called? Project Big Picture turned down um and you know it, is that all football is now a money-making exercise um yeah i think to a lot of owners um that's what it is and i don't mean a money-making exercise in the sense that they're necessarily greedy as we understand it because the reality is look many of these guys could make a lot more money Mm. in different industries, right? Um, you know, Roman Abramovich, um, the people who own Manchester City, even Malcolm Glazer, we could make more money 
doing something else. The people across town from you at Liverpool definitely could be making more money doing something else. Mm. Um, but I think what has changed is that if in the past people back football clubs out of personal ambition, out of a desire to, to, to have their ego stroked, out of to have, sorry, to have more influence, you know, it's like people who bought shares in racehorses or people who bought, um, you know, art collections. I think now, I think now financial for play is done. It's one of the side effects of financial for play together with globalization mm. is that this is now an investable industry, right? You, you can make money off this industry if you're smart or at least not lose money. And you're, you can see your asset appreciate in value. And you have people coming in and this is kind of their, this is kind of their raison d'etre. You know, the, if I were to ask you, there's 20 clubs in the Premier League. Do you know how many of them have foreign owners? I should because I've done my dissertation on it. Um, I'm going to say, is it... Some clubs got promoted and relegated. Is it's, it it's four, um, 14, it's, 16? It's, 14, it's yeah. 14. Okay. And plus then you have Joe Lewis, who people seem to forget because they think Daniel Levy owns Spurs, but no, it's this man named Joe Lewis. And by the way, the next time people go and rail about billionaires who are unfair and whatever, you know, Joe Lewis was born in this country. He was educated in this country. He got the benefits of a state education and a state system in this country. And then he decides to move to the Caribbean to as a tax exile. So he doesn't have to pay too many taxes to this country, which educated him and nurtured him and gave him an opportunity. So I just had to get that off my chest because I don't know why nobody ever gives him stick. People give the glazer stick, whatever, and I'm happy for that. That's fair enough. But nobody ever has a go at this man. It's like he's totally the forgotten man in football. Um, but look, uh, so these people are involved in it. And, and the, the, these, I think one of the big issues with the football industry, it's not just greed. It's that the way the industry is set up, every penny that comes in generally goes out again. It gets either gets reinvested in the team or if it's, or if you're Manchester United, you know, it gets taken in dividends from by the Glazers. Mm. Um, so when you have a stop to revenues, like we've had with a global pandemic, all of a sudden you're like, how am I going to make payroll? How's this going to work? There's no other industry or very few other industries where all of a sudden, you know, your revenue goes down to zero overnight. And, and obviously it didn't quite go down to zero, but you know, it went way down with a TV rebate and whatever. And for a lot of, of football league clubs and lower division clubs, as you've seen, it pretty much did go down to zero because they make a pittance from television and their entire gates, their entire revenue base is the gate and like, you know, people drinking at the club bar. And that is a massive, massive blow. And so you've had two things happening. You've had clubs saying, all right, you know, I may be asset rich, but right now I'm really cash poor. So I need to borrow money to tide me over or whatever else. And you've also had, I think a lot of private equity players, people who, you know, these massive behemoths who, handle enormous amounts of money and they're looking around and they're like, well, where do we, where should we invest our clients money? Well, you know, it's not going to be the airline industry. There's not going to be the hospitality industry. There's a global downturn. Oh, well, football's 
pretty recession proof. Mm -hmm. People still talk about it. Why don't we go there, especially since right now, maybe it's fairly cheap to do so because a lot of football clubs are hurting. And I think that is the genesis of this European Super League idea. The idea that, and, and I do have a piece going up, which, which talks about this a little bit, you know, the idea that, all right, can we cut these other guys loose? And can we make some more money, give us some more stability? And remember, like I said before, a lot of these owners culturally, I'm not saying they're bad people or bad owners, but, you know, at least from the ones who come from the, who come from the U.S., I, for them, a closed league, no promotion, relegation, salary cap, that's what it's all about, right? Mm. That, they know that that model works and they say, well, why shouldn't it, why shouldn't it work over here? Yeah, and would that increased revenue, again, similar to what happened in 92, be a byproduct of, of broadcasting? See, that's a really good question because I think in some ways the landscape obviously has changed, right? Um, we saw the Premier League TV deal, the domestic deal anyway, um, that actually decreased yeah. um, in this right cycle compared to the previous one, I think by about 7%. Um, it'll likely decrease further. It's not like Sky and BT Sport have been minting it um, with their money. You know, there is a sense that the, the market's already saturated. The people who aren't buying you know, Sky subscriptions or BT Sports subscriptions in England, they're not buying them because they can't afford it. It's not like they're not buying them because they don't like football. And they get their football in other ways. Uh, people have been predicting that the global market for television rights is going to decline for a long time, and it hasn't, at least not for what you consider premium content. Um, but I think right now, I don't, I, I kind of feel it does. So you may ask, well, then why are they doing this? And I think the answer is they're doing it because they don't really want to share. Mm. Um, as you probably know, in the Premier League, the biggest earning club um, from TV rights gets about 1.55 to 1.6 times as much as the lowest earning club. Well, that club, I think last city, I think it might've been Man City last year or Liverpool because it's based on, on different factors, as you know, they can look at it and say, well, hang on a second. Why am I just getting, you know, 50% more than Norwich when I spend 30 times as much as Norwich mm -hmm. on marketing the club, on promoting the club? Most people who tune in, tune in to watch me. They don't do it because they're, you know, Daniel Fark fans. Um, I should get more of it. Yeah, I've done more to promote this product. Norwich exactly. just came up. I built this product over 20 years. Why shouldn't I get more? Mm. And that's an age-old argument that that you know that sort of the the bigger legacy clubs have been making for a long time. Mm. I was going to say that they certainly can unlock those greater levels of of revenue. And I mean, for me, it takes away one of the primary elements of not just football but sports that uncertainty of outcome, like. Last night in my misery, I, I stuck on Dortmund versus Lazio. And what a game. What a game of football. Lazio ran out winners. And, you know, is the Champions League not enough now? Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. <laughs> it's, you know, uh, you know, it's funny. 
when people talk about uncertainty of outcome, right? They, you know, they point to Paris Saint-Germain and Juventus and Bayern dominating mm. their leagues. But I'll tell you what, like, I think I'm correct in saying something like out of the last seven years, I think it's happened like two or three times that the same six teams haven't finished in the top six positions. Obviously, one of them was last year, obviously. You know, and what did it take? You know, it took a Leicester fairy tale. It took Wolves, who are owned by a guy who also happens to own 20% of the world's biggest and most powerful football agency. You know, it took all these anomalies, right, for that to happen. I, that's not healthy. Um, Again, I don't have this year's figures, but I think Spurs had the sixth highest wage bill in the Premier League last year. And I believe Everton had the seventh or, or around there. Mm-hmm. And Spurs' wage bill was what, twice as high as Everton's? Yeah. I mean, you know, this is already, you know, this shit's already real, basically. So the question is, how do you mitigate it? How, what can you do? And, and I think for the bigger clubs, the logic is let's just go to the next phase. If we go to the next phase, if we create a closed Super League, then we can impose salary caps, right? Why does the NFL make so much money? Because all the NFL players, right, the, the talent that you're paying for, all of them together cannot make more than 48% of the league's revenue, Right? The other 52% goes to cover club costs, stadiums, blah, 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 travel, whatever, and is the owner's profit, right? Once you can do that, you have your proverbial license to print money. And, and I think, you know, when I ask myself, why, like if you're Spurs, for example, right? Why would you back a plan like this? Like what we saw with Project Big Picture, because Sure, you'll make some more money. You know, maybe you'll double your revenue, but United will make 10 times the revenue. So how's that going to help you? And I think the answer is if you start doing things like that, you get closer to the day when you can have a salary cap um, and a more level playing field. um, And that'll benefit you. What it won't benefit is all the other clubs outside the big six, you know, who aren't invited to join. Mm. Yeah, that's a shame, but that's a, an excellent point. Yet another element of the the MLS closed lead structure borrowed in regards to this, you know, potential new European European Super League. And now, as I'm responsible for the media management at Grand Old Team, I feel like it's only relevant to bring up the team that are hot on the lips of a lot of people at the moment for all the wrong reasons. Um, and I would like to thank you, Gab, for being the voice of reason in your recent chat with Julian Loren um, when he imposed that Jordan Pickford should be banned for the same amount of time that Virgil van Dijk is out <laughs> injured um, by clearly stating that that is not in the laws of the game. Um, now, this is... This is something I was really interested to ask because obviously you are a more representative sample of somebody in national and global media. And a general consensus among Evertonians is that when it comes to the more national and global media, it's not that Everton are necessarily 
overlooked, but they're not as appreciated, not appreciated for their true value. You know, um, you look, for example, when we recently beat Crystal Palace, there was a huge uproar about the handball rule because we received the penalty from a handball, which ultimately won us the game. Uh, and on the opening day of the season, when we beat Spurs away, all of a sudden, uh, Spurs are an easy team to beat. Um, I was just wondering, from your perspective, what do you think of Everton, and of course, in particular, this season? Um, I was, so, first of all, I wanted to just go back to what Jules said about it, uh, about uh, Pickford should be out for as long as Van Dyke is out. I, unfortunately for me, when they posted that clip, the first person you see in the clip is me. So there was all this reaction of people who just saw the headline, didn't watch the clip, and came after me and insulted me. So just, just for the avoidance of doubt, I do not believe that a player should be suspended for as long as the guy he got injured uh, or, or the guy he injured, whether intentionally or unintentionally, should be out for. I think it's a foolish idea. I, we were getting all these reactions like, oh, well, where were you when Hongmin Son, you know, fouled Andre Gomes and all these other... This idea has been around for a long, long time. The reason it was a big deal is that Van Dyke is a very good player. He's a very popular player. Yeah, I've heard the same argument when... I heard the same argument 25 years ago when Goicochea injured um, Diego Armando Maradona. Yeah, I'm that old. Um, I've, I've, I've heard it when, when Ronaldo, the original Ronaldo, came back and got injured. You know, it's something that people come up with. I think it's a foolish and unworkable idea. Um, I don't know why a no-name, you know, left-back at Sheffield United should be, reserved left-back at Sheffield United should be deemed any less valuable than, you know, from an ethical perspective than, than a Van Dyke or, or a James or, or whatever whatever else you choose to name. So just wanted to get that out there. Um, in terms of Everton this season, um, and I got a little bit of stick for this from, from some people, I looked at it and I try to look at things pretty analytically. And I say, all right, Premier League financial fair play or short-term cost control or whatever is a thing. It's a thing with in Europe as well. Somebody who spent a lot of time reading this or, or working on financial fair play. And I know it's like the, you know, instant Twitter, social media response, like, oh, financial fair play is a farce. Look, City got off, whatever. It's not a farce. A clubs, you could talk about the enforcement and mistakes that have been made, but clubs have to live by it, right? Yep. They can't just go and spend and ignore that. And the same applies to Everton. So when I looked at Everton, when, when, when Carlo, who uh, I've had the privilege of spending time with on, on several occasions over the years, um, going back to when he was the manager of Milan, um, when he came in, I said, okay, well, this is interesting because he's only ever managed, or his most recent appointments were, you know, teams that were ready to, to win now, right? Ready to go and win the title straight away, whether it's Real Madrid, whether it was Napoli, Paris Saint-Germain, um, whatever. Um, he was clearly going for a longer-term project. A project involving younger players, you know, that money ball stuff that people like to throw around, um, you know, somewhere to find value and to grow organically. Because the reality is, if you're Everton, to be able to afford, you know, big name players of the kind that he was used to, you need to grow your revenue. 
and your stadium won't be generating revenue for several seasons, um, or I mean, the huge uptick in revenue, obviously. Um, you could increase revenue by finishing higher up the table, but that's really, really difficult to do. And even then it doesn't really move the needle substantially. Or you could increase revenue commercially if you've got a brilliant commercial team, but you know, every team goes and tries to do that and you attract top sponsorship, whatever. So I thought he's there for a longer term project and he is there for a longer term project, but he still, I think, wants and asks the club for players that can contribute straight away. Hence the thinking, obviously, with Alan Ducore and James. I, think I made the mistake of describing it, to describing those signings as a bit weird, not because they're bad players, but because they're expensive players. And not when I say expensive players, I always look at it in terms of the wages plus the amortized value of their fee. In other words, what that means um, is if I buy somebody for 30 million and he has a five-year contract, he's costing me 6 million a year in amortization. So I take that, I add that to the player's wages. I look at the player's age and I try to judge, was he likely to have resale value? I mean, it's as simple as that, right? Yeah. And I looked at it and I said, okay, you know, this is, this speaks more of Everton rolling the dice, which if I'm on Chilotti, that's what I want. You know, I don't want to come here and, you know, dealing kids I'm built very, very slowly or whatever, because I might not get the time. So that was my thinking. Um, in terms of Everton's prospects this season, I, I knew, I knew Hamas was, I mean, I suspected Hamas would flourish under him um, because obviously he's done really well uh, under Ancelotti. He was very clear on that. Alan is another guy he had before. So the, the gamble with Alan was he had a very difficult final year at Napoli. But prior to that, he was arguably one of the top two or three midfielders in Serie A, uh, obviously linked to Paris Saint-Germain and whatnot. So again, you had to put your faith in, faith in Carlo, that Carlo knows the guy, knows that he can, he's going to be back to his best. And Ducouré is obviously, he's a guy I really rated at Watford and I thought, you know, I thought was a good signing. I, you know, what you see is what you get with that. So I thought, all right, well, He's done this, obviously. That is not only going to take you so far. He's going to earn his bacon this year by making players better. Um, the players were already there. Uh, the younger ones, but, you know, and even, and obviously people are going to point to uh, Dominic Calvert-Lewin. That's one example. I think there's others. I think when, when Mason Holgate returns and has a spell of fitness, I hope he gets on the pitch because I think he's a guy who, Carlo does rate and I think can do uh, can do better. Um, but I think that has to be the way forward um, for a club like Everton because you can add those three players, but you know the imbalance of resources and wages is so big that you really need a freak season to be able to finish in the top four and make that great leap forward in terms of uh, in terms of revenue. Yeah. Possible this season. You know what? Anything is possible this season. I don't even think we fully understand what a weird, screwed-up season this is going to be because mm. of the global, because of global pandemic. We have the most congested season in the history of football. Yeah. Again, I, people haven't wrapped their heads fully around what this means, uh, especially for clubs playing um, in Europe. 
Uh, I think it's madness that they didn't stick to the five substitute rule. I think that just puts more wear and tear on players. I think you're going to start seeing COVID outbreaks as well. I mean, we're taping this on a Wednesday. Uh, as we're taping this, Bayern Munich don't know if Serge Gnabry can play or not today because of because of the COVID test. Uh, we've had COVID outbreaks in different clubs. I'm almost a little suspicious that I kind of feel like nobody in the Premier League has tested positive for COVID since since David Moyes, which feels a bit weird to me. I don't know if they lost the COVID test, but you know, I pray that that's not the case. This this is going to be a season where all sorts. Oh, and there's no fans, obviously, for a big chunk of it. Hopefully, they'll be back at some point. So for that reason, when you've got all these uncertainties, all these anomalies, yeah, I would say it's more likely this year than it would be under under normal circumstances. And I think what you'll find if Everton keeps winning, what Carlo really excels at is keeping everybody on an even keel and kind of absorbing, you know, the pressure on the team um, and kind of insulating them from that. So, yeah, I, I would say it's possible because just it's just the nature of 2020. Yeah, definitely. And that is something that I would like to ask about. You know, I'm, I'm really glad that you brought up Mason Holgate there because of the squad of players that we've got. Mason Holgate is one of my personal favourites. I'm, I'm a sucker for a, a ball-playing defender or a defender that, you know, is no nonsense and seems like he's got a, a lot of potential. Um, Paolo Maldini is one of my favourite players of all time. Um, and you, you touched on it first when talking about Italian football, that sort of um, the idolisation and iconography of individual players. Uh, you know, when I was in university during my first year, I only had one poster in my room, but it was a Francesco Totti. Uh, right. <laughs> I, think it, I think it rings true in Italian football. Uh, and as you said there, I think that also applies to Don Carlo to, to some extent. So, I just want to ask, you've obviously said you've got experiences with uh, interacting with him and working with him in the past. What's he like as a man? He's very different from a lot of other, um, a lot of, a lot of other managers out there. I, you know, like I don't think you're going to find anybody who says anything negative about him as a person. Um, whereas you will with almost everybody else. Um, he is in self-deprecating. Um, he's, he makes you feel like whenever you talk to them, it's like you're the most important thing in his world right now. Um, and he comes across as really, really genuine. Uh, you know, these are qualities that obviously got him a lot of in-demand jobs. As a coach, I think what some people don't realize about him is that he his trajectory, obviously, he was a great player for Roma and then for Milan. Um, but he started out as a coach under, as an assistant to Arrigo Sacchi. And um, Arrigo Sacchi had extremely rigid ideas. Arrigo Sacchi was a genius, but he had a very extremely, just extremely rigid ideas about tactics and how things should play and players following tactical instructions. And, and that was Ancelotti in his first few jobs as a manager. He freely admits this. Um, I think maybe some, some listeners will know they watched Italian football in the 90s that Ancelotti famously, when, when he was at Parma, 
he, you know, he turned down the chance to sign Roberto Baggio and he went to Gianfranco Zola and said, oh, um, look, I can't play you at striker because I think it was Chiesa and Crespo he had at the time. Those guys are better than you. You got to play as a winger and track back. And when Zola wasn't very good at it, he's like, sorry, that was the only place I could put you. There's no room for you here. And so he went to Chelsea and the rest is history. Um, and he says, you know, that was a mistake. It was a mistake saying no to Roberto Baggio because I was like, oh, how does he fit my 4-4-2 with the pressing triggers and whatever else and the movements off the ball? He's not that guy anymore. He can be that guy, which I think was, and I think, again, if you were to speak to Bayern fans, some of them didn't like him, but, you know, that he, the fact that he can be that guy is what prompted Bayern to look to him to replace Pep. So, you know, can you be a hybrid of that more schematic, more high pressing, high intensity thing? And what we've seen is your approach. You can also be, you can also be a pragmatist. Um, I think he's somebody who's always kind of thinking ahead and you don't always see that because he normally doesn't ask these questions. But I remember, I remember when I spent time with him um, a couple of years ago, He's like, you know what I think the next big innovate, one of the next big innovations in football might be? Um, he said, when we have training sessions, we spend X amount of time on conditioning and fitness. Every player's body is different. I think we'll get to the point where every player is going to have their own personal trainer. They're going to train by themselves on their own time. And then when we come to the training session, all we're going to do is shape and tactics and all those things that, you know, for which you need other players for. But the conditioning, uh, you know, two laps around the pitch, lots, whatever, running on the sand on the beach, whatever the hell people used to do, like that's going to go out the window. Um, and I thought, like, man, that's, that, that's really interesting. He also pointed out, I think, another huge paradox in, in football, which, again, for clubs that are involved in Europe, um, especially in this very congested season, you simply don't have very many training sessions. Your training sessions are basically walkthroughs. And what that means is that you as a manager, you have very little input. Like you have a lot of input in picking a team and giving instructions pre-match and making substitutions, obviously. But beyond that, you can't really work with players. You can't really teach with, you know, you can really teach players individually the way you might have under normal circumstances or the way you might on a team that's not involved in, in European football. And, and he said, you know, and I think that's a shame. Like I, you know, I'm a club owner, like I'm paying Pep or Klopp, you know, untold millions, giving them all this power, knowing that I can't send them out there to do what they're best at, which is working on the training pitch. And I, and I thought that was that was a really good point. And, and I think another another sort of paradox of where we're kind of going in football, where, where players are being asked to play so many games. Yeah, definitely. That's really interesting to hear that he is one of those sort of philosophical guys that, that looks forward. And just to, to round up the podcast now, I've been extremely grateful for your time, Gab. I mean, looking forward, what Bramley Murdoch is supposedly two or three years away. 
Uh, I know Carlo did say that he did want to extend his contract beyond then and be at the club for that period of time. I know you said anything is possible uh, during this freak season, but if you were to put an estimate on how long and what it would take for Everton to, who knows, maybe want to be one of these clubs in a European Super League, how how do you think that happens and how does Carlo go about that? I'm curious when you mention European Super League. Uh, I'm sorry, I apologize if I ask you a question now. Uh, and I get this a lot, obviously, with people in the other half of Merseyside, you know, who they're all man of the people, whatever. But then you talk Super League, and of course, you can't have a Super League without Liverpool, right? And do you think Everton fans want this? The European Super League? I don't know. Like, is it the kind of thing that, because I'm, I'm, it's, it's a genuine question, because you have a whole bunch of clubs who are kind of, on the bubble in some way, right? Potentially in, potentially out. And the knee-jerk reaction, like if Joel Glazer were here, he would probably tell you, well, um, all these people are against it because their clubs aren't in it. I mean, I know for a fact that's what Florentino Perez would say, right? Okay. Would you want, would you want to be in a closed European, would you want your club to be in a closed European Super League? Personally, I stand against the concept, but what I would say as an uneducated 22-year-old that has only been alive for a short slither of time in football, that if you go back to the late 80s, you know, obviously the European ban and Heisel, Everton were robbed of achieving so much of their potential during their peak times. And as I say, that took away any prospect of achieving, who knows, you know, a European Cup, consistent European finishes. And by the time Sky's investment in the Premier League happened in 1992, although Everton were one of those big six clubs at the time that were consulted, they may have had much bigger bargaining power uh, and be, you know, who knows, in a similar situation to what Liverpool are in now. So... As I say, I can see both sides of the coin uh, and where both opinions may come from. But me personally, I just don't like the concept. It's a, I mean, I, I, you know, I've spent a lot of time talking to different people, people who want to see this happen, people who act like they don't, people who only want to see this happen if they can be a part of it. Um, you know what would really scare me? Um, is that if you go the whole hog, if you go, all right, 20 super clubs or whatever dotted around Europe, closed system, NBA style, NFL style. I'll tell you what, it's going to be really, really hard to justify two teams in Manchester. Fact, plus another team 25 miles away. Mm. And not have a team in Berlin, for example, um, or Moscow, yep. or Amsterdam. Because once you make it all about money and catchment area and population size, and unfortunately, in some ways, you know, this is what football has become, right? And Liverpool are hurt. I mean, hurt in inverted commas by this as well, right? In the sense that you have to share a city 
which isn't an enormous city, incidentally, it's not Paris, um, with another hugely successful club. You got the, you know, you got the Irish Sea on one side and the world on the other, and then you go the other way and you've got freaking United and City, right? And so you you have a diffuse fan base. And so sponsors look at this and say, well, yeah, I don't want to invest in them. Let me go and build something in Berlin where I've got seven rich Germans with BMWs to I can sell my product to. I, once that thinking takes over, and look, I say this, I'm from Milan. Could Milan have two teams? Mm, I don't know. Could Madrid have two teams? Again, based on history, both Inter and Milan are there. Nobody's going to argue with that. Based on potential in Catherine area, can you justify any European city having more than one team, except maybe London at a stretch, mm-hmm. maybe two? You know, sorry, Spurs or Chelsea, one of you two is losing out. I mean, this is what we're going to get into. These are the conversations, right? Once you make it, a, once you make it about money, and people have to be cognizant of that. Man City have to be cognizant of that. You know, Sheikh Mansour, they'll love you as long as you keep bringing all the money. But at some point when they have to make decisions and they have to count heads, all right, are there more of you or are there more United guys? Okay, look, United have X many more fans. See ya. You know, um, that's the thing. Sorry, but to go back to your original question, can Everton get back? Um, I think it's obviously it's a lot more difficult today, right? Because you talk about, oh, like, you know, you're free to invest in a stadium, but then you have to fill the stadium and you have to fill the stadium without gouging the fans. You know, one of the big things, well, with the Emirates here in London is they make a ton of money off their stadium because it's a big stadium full of fans. They charge very high ticket prices mm-hmm. and they charge a ton of money in selling corporate boxes to people in the city because London's a big place with a lot of very rich people. Can Everton go down that route to the same degree? I was talking to somebody at a club across town uh, from you who said one of the frustrations with the corporate boxes at Anfield is that there's no late train back to London (laughs) because we could sell to a bunch of people there, but unless they charter a plane back or a coach, you know, nobody wants to, you know, they, they, they need to be back in the office or back jetting off to New York or Hong Kong the next morning, right? It's this dynamic, right? The game's become so much about money and revenue and all these things. And while I spend a lot of my life covering it, I wish we could just talk about the football side yeah. of it. You know, on the football side, I'll tell you what, if everybody stays fit this season and if you got a few breaks, I see no reason why Everton can't finish top four. Um simply because of, of all the uncertainty that's out there, simply because, again, but leaving all the non-football stuff aside, you know, you have, I think you've got clubs like Chelsea have made a ton of changes. Clubs like United, you know, it's one week up, one week down. Um, Liverpool have obviously lost arguably their most important player. Um, Spurs, still Mourinho, you never quite know when, you know, when, when you got a ticking time bomb. And I do think Arteta has still has an enormous rebuild on his hands at Arsenal. And I think Arsenal are going on a journey similarly where we won't see the real Arsenal for a few years. So, yeah, there's a ton of things in place that suggest to me that it's possible. But, you know, you got to have a lot of breaks. 
yes, uh, certainly many different variables during this transitional period in, in English football. And one would hope Everton can achieve success sometime soon. Now, Gab, I'd just like to say uh, I really do appreciate your time and I could speak to you for, for hours on end uh, about some of the, the points that you've raised that I thoroughly enjoyed the podcast and I'm glad that I did it. You're more than welcome to come onto the podcast anytime you'd like. Um, so I just want to say again, thanks for speaking to me and thanks for the time. No, well, um, thanks for having me on. Um, shout out to your dad, who I know is looking down and is no doubt proud of, of, of you. And um, to everybody out there, please stay safe. And to everybody out there who gave me stick for what Julia Lawrence said, I invite you all, please listen to the Gab and Jules show. Afterwards, feel free to go on Twitter and abuse him. He likes it. But, um, you know, I'm happy to answer for the stuff I say. I don't want to be answering for the stuff other people say. Of course. Take care. Stay safe. Thanks everybody. so much. Bye. Cheers, Max. Take care. All the best.